Our scripture reading for this morning is coming from the book of Exodus in the 32nd chapter, verses 1 through 14. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. And as you're turning there, just some background information um, that between the creation of the covenant in, in chapters 19 through 24, And the breaking of the covenant here in chapter 32, God gives Moses guidelines. Guidelines for the production of the tabernacle and the tent in which God may dwell among them. And he he gives them a powerful promise of his presence and protection. And there is so much that is exciting building up to this and hopeful in these chapters, which makes this one a bit of a surprise. If Exodus is the, was the creation story of Israel, passing through the sea is the birth, and this would be the fall. This is the Genesis 3 all over again. That garden scene where it becomes a tangled mess and harmony turns into dissonance. Rest to disturbance, preparedness to confusion. And the future with God becomes a highly uncertain matter. And so now that you know what's kind of going on building up to it, let's hear what happens in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us, who shall go before us and for this, And for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said, Take off your gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took the gold from him and he formed it in a mold and he cast an image of a calf. They said, These are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron said, and Aaron made the proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. And so you hear what's going on at the bottom of the mountain. And then in verse 7, we hear a change of what's going on between Moses and God atop the mountain. And the Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely and they have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And they said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people? 
whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars in heaven. And all this land I have promised to you, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there's a lot that happens in these 14 verses. Um, I thought about abbreviating it and doing different sections. uh, But I think ultimately what we see at play is one story. And, And as we've heard, before we even get to the idea of the golden calf, which many people think is the core of this whole story, we, we have to look at the why. That God and Moses have been on Mount Sinai for 40 days, doing all that we've already heard mentioned, and, and the people begin to grow restless. And I can imagine, I mean, it, it, it's almost comedic when they go, this Moses guy, the one that led us out of here, we don't even know where he is anymore. And they've already lost sight and lost hope. And and the reality that comes to my mind is I can only speak for myself, so I'm not going to put this on anybody else. But if it speaks to you, then so be it. But we are a what have you done for me lately people. And I don't just mean that with with each other. I mean that with God as well. We are a what have you done for me lately. God and Moses are out of sight. They must be out of mind as well is kind of how this plays out. And they cannot hold their faith through this perceived abandonment. You ever felt that way? You find yourself and you perceive that God has abandoned you. And so that what do you do? Oh, well, whatever. I'll figure it out. I'll handle it. I'm good. They were quick to forget what God has done. And quick to search for little g-gods in their times of trouble. And this is a moment, this is a side note that I just want to point this out, that just because you see God at work in somebody else's life and you may not feel God's presence in your life does not mean that God has abandoned you. But we, we see that in the people, in the Israelites, that's how they feel. And so what do they do? For lack of a better term, they begin to hedge their bets. They... They do it so much so that if God is not going to do what they want, they say, well, we'll handle it. We got this under control. And part of this is the creation of this golden calf. The Israelites have gone back, or possibly, depending on how you look at it, never really abandoned this, this polytheistic way, this idea of worshiping multiple gods. They no longer are worshiping the one true God, but the little g, gods. And, and what's even more interesting is that if you look at it, God is talking to Moses about how to build the tabernacle. And what they do 
is create a dwelling place for the little g-gods. A divine seat, if you will. They have literally created the anti-tabernacle. It's this, it's this tension that we see throughout it. That, that God and Moses are up here on the mountaintop and something's going on here that's religious and deep. And then we see down here and we see the superficial, worldly way of doing things. I can recall growing up, and I've still got one on my rear view mirror, and some of you may be wearing one right now, that these WWJD bracelets were really, really popular. And then, because they were so popular, people started giving out all these other types of bracelets. And one that was very interesting to me was frog. And you may not remember the frog bracelets. They were kind of the knockoff WJD bracelets. But frog stood for fully rely on God. And as I start to think about the ideas of WWJD and the frog bracelets, the question that comes to my mind is why were they even necessary? And what is it that we rely on? Why do we need to be reminded to fully rely on God? Where is it that we find ourselves turning before God? Or when we think that God has abandoned us? What are those little g-gods that we worship still claiming that God is number one? In those moments where we find ourselves praying but we don't feel answers. In those moments where we think God is showing favor to others, in those moments where God calls us somewhere that we don't want to be, in those moments, what do we do? What do we do when God's call for us doesn't line up with our own desires, with our own bottom lines, with our own comfort levels, with our own political agendas, or with our own wants and desires? What do we do when God's action or inaction are against what we want and we desire? Do we find ourselves, like the Israelites, turning to the little g-god that appeases our worldly appetites? Do we claim to worship the one true God only to build a false idol for the rest of the gods to rest? Do we find ourselves building an idol to self, but proclaiming that God is still number one? We find ourselves saying things like, well, I'll go to that church and I'll hear God's word and, and, and I'll listen to that sermon so long as it doesn't change the way I think, challenge my, my views on this, ask me to think differently, call me to any sort of change, I'm good. My personal wants and desires don't need to be in question here. And so we find ourselves worshiping so long as we can continue to worship our personal wants and desires and our families, and our biases, and our prejudices, and we're willing to follow God so long as we don't have to give that up. So long as God doesn't call me to change, I'm good. I'll worship you then, God. Which calls to question, are we really ever worshiping God if that is the way in which we approach it? 
I've heard many a clergy, and I've been guilty of it myself, where when we construct sermons, so often we have a tendency to go, ooh, well, I don't need to say that. That might upset somebody. i got to keep people happy. And the reality that you hear over and over in Scripture is Jesus is like the king, not only the king of kings, but the king of stepping on toes, too. And the beauty of him stepping on toes is it causes us to move. And if you don't give up something, we find ourselves turning to the little g-gods saying, I can pursue that. I can pursue those because we convince ourselves that the big g-god wants that for us. The big G-God, all all God really wants for me is to be happy. And the reality is, as we hear over and over in Scripture, is God's not worried about how happy you are. So long as His will and His kingdom is being done. That God so often calls us to change, and what He's thinking is we're worried about happiness, and He's worried about if we have joy. See, we're looking at this, what have you done for me lately, instantaneous type of lifestyle. And God is calling us to something much, much deeper. And so the Israelites have formed this golden calf, this anti-tabernacle. And they've begun to worship their own little G-gods. Not realizing that God doesn't approve They're saying, well, you know, we're worshiping multiple gods, but, you know, God, you're still number one. Yeah, these things drive what I do, but God, you're still number one. And don't mishear me. I'm not sitting up here saying that y'all do this. I'm still figuring this out myself. Like, I feel like this is part of that journey in Christianity is what does it look like day in and day out for God to be number one? Because those gods in our lives can creep in. For me, sometimes it's the God of ego and control and self. But, but what we start to realize, or at least I've started to realize for myself, is that all of this stems from insecurities and fears and anxieties and worry. And that we build false gods because we've believed the lies of the world. You see, that is where these fears, insecurities, all of this comes from. We fall into the trap of trying to bolster self. And we start to believe that we're the center of the universe. We are the author of the story. What we want is what God wants instead of the other way around. And we become like Aaron. Oh, Aaron. He just wants to have his calf and his Yahweh too. He wants to be able to worship God, but to still be able to do whatever he wants to do. And we're not so different, me and Aaron. He creates a seat for the gods and, don't miss this, because he also created an altar for Yahweh. He created a seat for all the little G-gods, but he also said, all right, big G-gods, you're still number one. But it's still in direct contradiction to the first and the second commandments. 
Aaron, the Israelites, and so often I, miss the point that God is really all you need. That, that what we start to find ourselves doing is acting out of fear, worry, concern, anger, hostility, because what we want isn't lining up with what God wants, and God's not doing it in my time, so I'll just take control and handle it over here. And the reality is, one of the hardest words that God can speak to us, and me personally, because I'm very impatient, is wait. This is what he has said. As him and Moses are going to the mountaintop and they are putting into place everything that's needed, his weight. And they grow impatient. And they get frustrated. They say, I know better. I know what we need to be doing here. Let, follow what I want to do. Follow this. Follow that. But we then hear of Moses and God atop, atop the mountain. And God, um, this is the understatement of this sermon, but God is a little upset. God's ready to rain down hellfire on these people and is literally looking at Moses going, hey, you're good, I'll start a whole new people with you. And Moses finds himself appealing to God. Appealing to God, saying, God, you don't want the, the Egyptians to think that you, that you freed them only for them to be killed out here. You don't want this or that. And the beauty of this is that God is willing to hear Moses' cry. And the fact that this rejection of God and the covenant is not the end of the story. And that is a testimony to the ancient Israelites' experience as they experienced the grace of God. You see, so often when you preach from the lectionary, it gives you a section of Scripture and you just wish that you could go on and read the rest of the chapter. Um, this is one of those times, because if we just read verses 1 through 14, we miss the larger text of Exodus 32 through 34 where we see the narrative affirms that grace is central to the character of God. This lectionary focuses on the initial sin. But here's my challenge to you as the church. There's multiple people in multiple places that you can find yourself in this text. And I can't answer that question for you. You've just got to be honest with you. Which sometimes is the hardest person to be honest with. But that's a whole different sermon for a whole different day. But who are you in this text? Maybe you're, you're Aaron. And, and when people come to you and say, Hey, we need to do this. We need to do that. That you're just like trying to plead. You're a people pleaser. And you go, Alright, sounds good. Let's do that. Maybe you're the Israelites and you find yourself sitting at the bottom of the mountain and God has said, wait, trust, hope. And you go, nobody's got time for that, God. I got better plans. I got things I need to do. I'm going to go handle this myself. Maybe, just maybe, 
And I say maybe because I think so often we like to put ourselves in the hero spot in the stories when we hear them in Scripture. But we need to be real honest with ourselves and so often we're not. But sometimes we are. And so maybe you're Moses in this story. And maybe you find yourself clicking on social media, listening to the radio, watching TV, and you see how this world has started to pursue its own little G-gods And you go, man, God can't be happy with where we're at. Man, God can't be happy that we've decided to pursue our own wants and desires over Him. Man, God can't be happy that we've decided to hate and divide instead of love and unite. Man, God can't be happy. And so maybe you're Moses praying for these people praying for this world that we can all agree so badly needs to see, hear, and feel God's presence. You see, it strikes me that the role of Moses in our text serves as a model for who we should be as individuals and as the church, bearing witness to God's faithful compassion and urging others to seek reconciliation with God and with one another. As I said, I can't tell you who you are in the story. But the beauty is that as we continue to read, we see that there is room for God's grace no matter who you are. No matter what it is that you are, where it is that you find yourself in the story, God extends grace. So my challenge is that as we go from this place that we can become real and honest with ourselves. And sometimes maybe it's, it'll be helpful if you, if you go home and, and you're sitting there with somebody and you go, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. This is the little G God that I found myself pursuing. Because, you know, once you start to name it, it doesn't have as much power over you sometimes. But whatever it is, my hope is that we realize that we can't have our calf and our Yahweh too. That in order for God to be number one, God has to be, as they say, number one with a bullet. Nothing else compares. Nothing else is even close. Are we willing to listen when God says, wait, hope, pray? Are we willing to trust even when we're not seeing the results we want to see? Or have we already started building our golden calf, and our anti-tabernacle. Amen and amen.